Hello and welcome to another College of Optometrists podcast with me, Martin Cordiner, Head of Research at the College. And me, Daniel Harden-McCartney, Clinical Advisor at the College. Today it's time for us to take a back seat because, yes, it's another College podcast takeover. The keys to the pod have been handed over to eager listener Sophie Hinton, London-based optometrist and College member, who contacted the show asking if she could have a go. And we said, okay then. Sophie chose to cover the role of nutrition and ocular health, so she spoke to Dr. Rudrani Banik, who is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the ICANN School of Medicine at the Mount Sinari Hospital in New York. Um, Rudrani, she sub-specialises in neuro-ophthalmology, but she also undertakes private practice and teaches at Mount Sinari and has time to weave in nutritional aspects into every area of her work. So Sophie and Dr. Bannock spoke back in January about personal experiences of nutrition on migraine, as well as its impact on inflammation and cataracts, the trickiness of nutritional research, the importance of antioxidants, the merits of supplements, and techniques for speaking to patients. So Daniel, in practice, are patients sometimes surprised uh, if you tell them that what they eat can affect their eyes? Well, patients do want to talk about this a lot in practice, and you know, every week, you see an article in the paper saying blueberries are good for your eyes or green leafy vegetables are necessary to prevent macular degeneration or glaucoma. So it's it's a very topical thing and people do want to talk about it, they're they're acutely aware. And and the challenge that optometrists have is is number one, navigating the evidence base out there, um, navigating Mm -hmm. the papers and also having enough time to have a really detailed conversation with people. And of course, optometrists are not dietitians or nutritionists, so they don't always have the expertise. But, you know, I, I thought actually this podcast was really interesting. and I really enjoyed listening to Dr. Bannock's view, um, particularly about, you know, you know, comparing and contrasting supplements versus natural sources and more holistic changes in diet, you, you, you know, and, and that approach. So um, so really interesting conversation to have her perspective on that. So is there, is there much talk about this um, in curricula at universities, do you know? Is this something that is covered more now than it? I mean, when you were, uh, were training, was it something that came up as much as, you know, you read about it now? So, so that's, that's a good point. There is not a core, it is not a core required part of any optometry undergraduate degree to look at nutrition um, and, and the eye specifically. I have no doubt it is covered um, in some pathology lectures and mm. in in some pharmacology um, lectures as well, and, and then during practical clinics, it, it comes up. But um, but there's no formal structure to it, and really, it comes back to more that curiosity. You know, we're scientists at heart, and we read the papers, we read the academic literature, and 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 I guess it's how do we build that into into the training in a, in a formal way. Yeah, I suppose we'll have made progress where you know how just before you go to the dentist, you might make sure you floss or something. When people come into your uh, practice, like stuffing kale in their mouth at the last minute, you know, that will be when there's been progress. Absolutely. And what's really interesting, I should mention, is um, in different parts of the UK and Wales, they're undertaking a really overall review of how eye care is delivered, both in primary and secondary care. And one of the important threads that they are weaving into that is whether there's preventable aspects, um, pre- preventable things that um, optometrists can do to help support the population of Wales to protect mm. their eyesight and, and take actions. And, and they really radically changed their contract for dentists and pharmacists to build this approach into what they're doing. So, so exciting things are happening in Wales 
relating to you know how optometrists should give advice to, to, to make lifestyle changes to improve visual outcomes right so i think a lot of people's diets have been affected by the pandemic and lockdown and mine in particular i'd say so i was wondering daniel if you could help me out uh, by offering any advice you would have on the following that i have eaten for actual meals within the last six months and the implications you think that might be for my eye health okay so just going to give you a quick list here so uh first off is a pizza um, yes, yeah, so I think it depends what's on there. I think if you're going for a Florentina with spinach, green leafy vegetables, I think that's a thumbs up. But, okay. uh, but pepperoni, not sure. Okay. How about two pizzas? Oh, if it, again, if it's got spinach, then 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 twice the spinach. That's good. right. Okay. Well, I'd I'd like to pretend that happened. So let's pretend that happened. Uh, half a salted caramel cake. I, I'm sighing. Can you see me sighing? Uh, I'm choosing not to. Uh, four oat-based cereal bars. Go on, go on. What next? Okay, well, here's the clincher. All the chocolate in the house. So, so I, I think we should do an evidence-based review. We did PubMed now, and we're typing right. chocolate and ocular health. Okay, it's very good of you to humour me, Daniel. I should point out that because of building work, I have also been without a kitchen. So that is definitely why my diet has been this way for the last five years. Anyway, so for more useful advice, then it's probably best not to eat half a cake for breakfast. It's over to Sophie. I'm Sophie Hinton. I'm an optometrist and I'm a listener of the College of Optometrists podcast and very interested in our subject today, which is about the role of nutrition on ocular health. And today we're talking to Dr. Rani Bannock. Dr. Bannock, would you like to introduce yourself? First of all, thank you, Sophie. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's truly a pleasure to be here and to share this, some information about this topic, which is very near and dear to my heart. Um, so I'm an ophthalmologist based in the United States. Um, I'm board certified. I also subspecialize in neuro-ophthalmology, but um, integrative health is a particular interest of mine. Um, I have actually pursued training in uh, functional medicine, which is a, a form of integrative medicine through the Institute of Functional Medicine here in the United States. And I'm, you know, I use a lot of um, nutritional principles in my practice. I use them for my patients, I use them for myself. And I, I am very interested in spreading this information because I think as eye care providers, both optometrists and ophthalmologists, we most of us have probably not had formal training in the area. So it is really, really important to be aware of the nutritional aspect of eye health. I definitely agree with that. There's something about uh, nutrition, which is intuitively, you, you know that there must be something in it that can help with ocular health and perhaps reducing the progression of uh, ocular diseases. But I agree, I don't know enough about the functionality of it. So it's great to talk to you about it. Can I ask, uh, what's a typical working week for you? So I have a hybrid practice. I have a private practice um, in which I'm solo, but then I also have an academic appointment. So I teach at Mount Sinai in New York City. I teach residents, I teach fellows, I teach medical students. So part of my week is spent in my private practice seeing patients and the other part of the week is spent teaching. I also do some research and I also do surgery. So depending on the day of the week, I'm either you know at one or the other location, but usually it is involved in patient care um, again, I do have some research, but it's clinical research. So, uh, so I'm still working with patients. And uh, this may be an, an unfair question, but what aspect of uh, these different roles do you enjoy the most? Oh, that is a very difficult question. I would say I enjoy them all um, for their unique, you know, kind of aspects. Um, I love in my private practice, 
Um, I love spending time with my patients. I get to know them on a very deep level. Um, I, I develop close long-term relationships with them. I know them, I know their families. Um, so I really enjoy that aspect. But then the teaching aspect is really also something I cherish. Um, when I decided to, you know, I, I used to be full-time faculty at Mount Sinai for many years before I decided to go private. Um, but I did want to retain the teaching aspect because I feel like uh, you know, passing on knowledge to future generations of providers is so, so important. Uh, that way I can have a, a broader impact when, when I teach others about, you know, what I know and what I'm passionate about. And then of course the research I love as well because it's, it's a way to forward um, advances in, in eye care. So we have a couple of really interesting trials going on right now at New York Ioneer, which is part of Mount Sinai. Uh, we have a gene therapy trial for labor hereditary optic neuropathy. And we have um, some other trials going on as well for uh, previously um, untreatable eye diseases like uh, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. So those are, are more, again, the, the research, the clinical trial aspects of what I do. But I, I do try to weave in the nutritional aspect no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm seeing a patient privately, whether I'm teaching residents and seeing patients with them, or whether I'm doing uh, research, I still try to integrate a little bit of, of the other uh, aspects of what I do. And, and by that, do you mean that uh, you try to incorporate some of the research to cover nutritional influence in, in these diseases, for example? Actually, yes. So uh, one of the um, one of the clinical trials uh, that uh, that we were performing was using a botanical agent for um, ischemic optic neuropathy. So, um, so not specifically nutrition, but something which is more integrative, again, based on a botanical agent. So I do try to promote that aspect of care, uh, both in research and in clinical practice. Brilliant, yeah, so practicing what you preach, as they say. Exactly, trying to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, um, that's brilliant. And sounds very well-rounded as a career. So that's um, very interesting. Can I ask though, how did you get into the nutritional aspects or the integrated approach to begin with? Yeah, so um, so it was due to my own personal journey. Um, so I am a migraine sufferer, and as a neuroophthalmologist, I also care for many patients with migraine. And there was a point in my life when I was having severe debilitating migraines, and I was basically having a headache every single day for two years straight. And I tried every medication out there available on the market and nothing was helping. And these medications were causing me side effects. Um, I had brain fog, I really couldn't function properly. So finally I said, there must be a better way to help me manage my migraines. And I'd seen some of the top headache specialists in New York City. And again, none of them had ever mentioned some of these other treatment modalities. And when I started to do some research, I realized that there were some key nutrients that I was probably missing in my diet. For example, magnesium and some of the B vitamins, in particular riboflavin, which is B2. And actually I realized that there was some research, there, was, there were published studies using some of these nutrients in the treatment of migraine. And once I started to implement some of these therapies into my own uh, you know, dietary regimen, my own lifestyle regimen, I really started to see the impact and the improvement that I got. And it, it almost was like a light bulb, but I had an epiphany moment where I realized that, you know, I can improve my own health by making significant changes in my own diet and my own lifestyle. Now, meanwhile, my diet prior was absolutely horrible. Again, I'd never really been trained in nutrition. I had maybe half a day during my medical school years in nutrition, but I was uh, subsisting off of a diet of pizza and ice cream and diet uh -huh. soda. 
And you can, you know, you can imagine, you know, I was, I was just, I had an absolutely horrible diet and I never once thought that what I was eating may be contributing to my own disease process. And once I realized that I made a major over, overhaul in my own nutrition, my own dietary regimens, and that's when I started to get better. And once I realized that I started to use some of these therapies for my patients. And I, I was really amazed, you know, pleasantly amazed, shocked by the improvements that some of my patients had. And then I decided to go further um, in terms of using nutrition in my practice. And that's when I decided to get formally trained in functional medicine and pursue the certification training. And then I decided to apply it to eye disease. So it's, it's basically, it's been a journey that's taken me about um, five or six years to get to the point that I'm at right now. Wow. Okay. Um, that's really interesting about migraines because definitely uh, as an optometrist, patients often come in uh, complaining of headaches and or migraines. And most often they've been seen by uh, the neurology unit. They haven't been able to really help them. It just seems more to be a research or ongoing research into why people develop migraines. So it, it would actually be really useful to know um, if there was anything that we could pass on to patients, which might help them in this integrated approach. Um, yes, yes. Um, so I, I would say first, um, patients should, should um, I would suggest that patients uh, really jot down what they're eating and you know, keep a migraine diary in terms of a food diary and also a lifestyle diary. That way um, patients can, or you can go on their discovery journey with them and help them figure out what may, be, may they be sensitive to, which particular types of foods. Perhaps it's foods that are, have high sugar content or perhaps it's food, they're foods that have a high histamine release content, or perhaps it's caffeine. Uh, for example, caffeine, you know, it, it is a double-edged sword when it comes to migraine. Some people, if they don't have much caffeine in their diet, they may benefit by having some caffeine and help them break the cycle of migraine. But um, far too often, it's the opposite where many patients have too much caffeine in their diet. They rely too heavily on caffeine and that may be propagating their migraine headaches. Uh, for example, for myself, I was having diet soda, I was having coffee, tea, I was probably having between eight to 12 caffeinated beverages a day, which is really, you know, mind boggling to think that and I never once thought that it could be contributing to my headaches. But once I started to recognize that and start to reduce the amount of caffeine that I was having, that's when I started to feel better. So I would suggest, you know, if, if, if someone is prone to migraines, to try to limit their caffeine intake to one caffeinated beverage or less a day. It's not that you have to cut it out completely, but it is important to do it in moderation. And then other people may be sensitive to other types of foods. For example, some people um, I've discovered are very sensitive to dairy. Um, cow's milk or other dairy products, butter, ice cream, um, foods like that. Uh, some people may be sensitive to gluten. So it is, again, important to do a headache um, assessment, I mean, a food assessment, a diary, and figure out which particular foods may be triggering. For some people, it may be nuts. I mean, it's, there's a whole range of different foods people may be sensitive to, and it's important to get that assessment completed. So is that related, because uh, some of the food groups you mentioned there remind me of the sort of IBS FODMAP uh, food groups. Is it similar in the sense of it causes um, inflammation or an irritation in that way? Or yes, the pathogenesis? yes. In, in some people, it can definitely lead them down the road of inflammation. And it's interesting you mentioned IBS. Um, many patients actually have concurrent migraine with other diseases, particularly inflammatory diseases, whether it be IBS or IBD, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, um, asthma, eczema, uh, some of these other inflammatory diseases. Many people also have autoimmune diseases. Um, in conjunction with their migraine. 
And it's, it's really important to look at foods that may be triggering their cycle of inflammation, because again, it can make tremendous differences in their therapeutic regimens. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. That, that's interesting. I've been listening to a previous podcast of yours and, and we've, I've heard about cataracts and the potential for antioxidants to help with cataract development. But I, um, from my university studies, I recall, I'm not sure if this is uh, totally correct, but the, the biggest um, role in developing cataracts may occur when you're young and you're in childhood and you receive a lot of uh, UV light into the eye. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that is what the studies suggest, um, that UV exposure, particularly during um, youth, uh, may be a contributing factor. There was also the, um, the Chesapeake Bay Fisherman study that also showed that UV exposure uh, increased the risk of cataracts. So um, to counteract that, of course, we always recommend to wear UV protection, whether it's uh, UVA, UVB blocking sun, sunglasses, or even a wide-brimmed hat. But I also really strongly believe that um, antioxidants, particularly vitamins A, C, and E, are really important in the, in the fight against cataract formation. Of course, all of us will develop cataracts in some form later on in life. But in terms of you know, earlier on, it really is important to have those antioxidants or, or plenty of those antioxidants through nutrition to prevent or provide a, a protective shield against cataract formation and oxidative stress and oxidative damage. Okay, so this um, very similar um, antioxidants as what are often mentioned for the protection of also macular degeneration. Yes, yes, but macular degeneration, you know, so I, um, I've done a quite, quite a bit of research in macular degeneration in terms of the nutritional approach to it. Part of the reason is because um, yeah, I've seen many patients who've unfortunately lost their vision, perhaps even gone blind from it. And I was really hoping to develop a protocol to help them. But the other reason is because um, I happened to do genetic testing through 23andMe and lo and behold, I have a gene for macular degeneration. So um, again, I had a, a personal kind of a reason for uh, trying to figure out what is the best approach to this. And what I've discovered is that you know, many of us have, have read the ARED studies um, in terms of the, you know, the supplements and, and some of the nutrients that we need for prevention of macular degeneration. But um, the strongest research really comes uh, from using the macular carotenoids. And so those are lutein, zeaxanthin, and then the lesser known macular carotenoids, which are mesozeaxanthin and perhaps even astaxanthin. And these are again, very potent um, uh, antioxidants. They are found in the, in the macula, particularly um, mesozeaxanthin, which is right at the center of the fovea, as well as zeaxanthin and lutein. Um, and these help to absorb a lot of the oxidative stress that our eyes are exposed to, whether it's uh, oxidative stress from UV damage, uh, blue light, which is a big concern for many people, particularly our reliance on screens and other types of oxidative stress um, just respiratory uh, induced oxidative stress. So these macular carotenoids are key. And yes, we can get them through supplements, but you know, it is really my strong belief it's best to get them through certain foods. And many people, you know, especially uh, both optometrists and ophthalmologists tell, instruct their patients, oh, have plenty of leafy greens, yeah, spinach, definitely. kale, collard beans, that, that's the mainstay. But there are many other foods that actually provide these macular carotenoids. So for example, uh, yellow and orange foods, for example, orange peppers, corn or maize, as some people call it, egg yolk, and some spices as well. For example, uh, paprika, 
saffron, cayenne pepper. These are also wonderful sources of these macular carotenoids. Now, I had also mentioned astaxanthin, which is perhaps one of the most potent uh, antioxidants found on the planet. Astaxanthin, unfortunately, is not found as readily in many foods. It's mainly found from marine species, for example, um, uh, salmon, uh, krill, um, and then <clears throat> other types of algae also can have astaxanthin. Uh, and again, it may not be easy to get it from foods alone. So in that situation, yes, a supplement may be quite beneficial to get that particular nutrient. Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say that any optometrist who has graduated in the last few years has um, is bound to be saying with everybody that has macular degeneration that they should eat green leafy vegetables. And most often when I say that somebody should try to eat kale, they cringe and um, almost can't bear to put it into their diet. So it's definitely useful to know that there are alternatives that are in theory more um, delicious yes. or widely accepted by people. So I'll be yeah, taking Yeah, and actually the research, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so the research suggests that in terms of um, lutein content, we should be getting about six and a half uh, milligrams per day of lutein from various different sources. And unfortunately, on the average Western diet, most people probably only get to one to two milligrams of lutein. Um, and zeaxanthin is, you know, recommended the doses about one to two milligrams. Most of us get less than one milligram. So it is important to get these nutrients from various different sources. And perhaps if you're, if you, if you feel like your diet is truly deficient, it's probably best to go ahead and supplement and be proactive about it. So there's a role both for, you know, food, which is, which is, you know, the ideal source, but also supplements is as it, well. Uh, the research is mostly regarding supplements, isn't it? Or is there, is there a systematic review for uh, having high uh, lutein and zeaxanthin content vegetables for reducing the progression of AMD? Yes. So there, there are some studies out of Europe which show that people who have diets which are rich in lutein and zeaxanthin, um, as well as some of the other antioxidants we had mentioned earlier, vitamins A, C, and E, they have a lower risk of macular degeneration, lower risk of progression of macular degeneration from the early to the advanced stages. So there is scientific data to back that. Unfortunately, you know, some of these nutritional studies are quite difficult to perform. Um, you know, it's very difficult to standardize uh, one's diet or a whole group, you know, thousands of people with their diet. Um, there are so many confounding factors, but there is sufficient data to support that, um, uh, you know, not just from supplementation, but from actual food. So, uh, so I'm, again, a very strong advocate. And again, in, in the research, so I, I ended up writing a book on macular degeneration or prevention of macular degeneration using an integrative approach. And my book should hopefully be released in March of 2021. But I talk about um, all of these, you know, different important nutritional aspects. And, and also in addition to the antioxidants, omegas are also very, very important. And, um, you know, this was studied as part of the ARADS trial uh, using omega-3s, for example, DHA and EPA, which are really the structural backbone of our photoreceptors, which we desperately need. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it is important to get those omegas as well. And if, if you know, you're not getting enough through diet, then again, supplementation may be necessary. Um, yeah, the, I think, is it, am I right in thinking that um, you can sort of have different omega-3s and with supplementation, so it's, people may be taking the wrong ones, or um, is, this, is this accurate? Well, there are many different types of omega, so there's omega-3s, omega-6s, omega-9s, but the omega-3s, which are again, DHA, EPA, and ALA, those are really key 
for prevention of ocular disease, not just for macular degeneration, but also we know for dry eye as well. So um, yes, the DREAM study, which was published, um, I think two years ago, uh, suggested that perhaps supplementation was not as effective, but having these nutrients in our diet are key. This We know this from the Women's Health Initiative um, and then several other studies looking at nutrition. So uh, it is important to get these through diet, these omega-3s. And the best sources are, uh, are marine-based, again, salmon, wild-caught fish, um, uh, mackerel, anchovies, tuna. Uh, but for those who don't get enough through, through fish, for example, people who are vegetarian or vegan, um, I happen to be a vegetarian myself, I do look for um, plant-based uh, sources. So algae, algal, algal sources of omega-3s are also available, um, or perhaps just taking a supplement uh, may be necessary. And am I right in thinking that there are nuts and seeds are high in omega-3 as well, omega-3 um, and 6? Um, some of them, yes. Um, so I usually recommend nuts, for example, pistachios are a wonderful source of um, some omegas as well as vitamin E. And you can also get some of your macular carotenoids from pistachios. For example, the lutein and zeaxanthin uh, help to give pistachios their beautiful green color. Other wonderful nuts are cashews, almonds, and um, walnuts. So those are also great sources of um, some of these omegas as well as uh, vitamin E, which is also a potent antioxidant. Great. Okay. Yeah. And I would probably suggest maybe, you know, a quarter cup of nuts a day and, and to cycle through the various different types of nuts to get a more um, complete profile, nutrient profile. Is there something in um, the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio that you're getting that if you get too much omega-6 from things like let's say a Mediterranean diet like olive oil, um, it has some kind of counterintuitive effect on the amount of omega-3 you're getting? Yeah, so, so there's a, that's a wonderful question about the omega-6 to 3 ratio. So, so I'll just backtrack a little bit. Um, again, we need all these omegas, but omega-6 tends to be more pro-inflammatory and omega-3s tend to be more anti-inflammatory. And the majority of our diet does tend to rely on omega-6, but you want to have a relatively low omega-6 to 3 ratio. And unfortunately, many people on a Western diet tend to have a very high omega-6 to 3 ratios. For example, more uh, pro-inflammatory uh, fats versus anti-inflammatory fats. And, and in, in fact, many um, people on a Western diet may have a, a ratio as high as 30 to one, or sometimes even 50 to one. So you want to try to lower that ratio down to the ideal ratio is about four to six to one and having healthier oils. For example, olive oil is a wonderful choice of oil uh, to help lower your omega six to three ratio. Also other types of oils that people may not normally think of. For example, avocado oil is a wonderful source of um, of omega-3 or healthy fats, I should say, medium chain triglycerides, um, also almond oil. Uh, and it's best to try to stay away from the omega-6 oils, which tend to be soy and canola and corn oil. So simply by changing your cooking oil, you could improve your omega-6 to 3 ratio. So very simple, simple things you can change in your, in your kitchen can help you. I'm trying to picture that using everything you're saying at the end of a a consultation with a patient and uh, trying to summarize it in just a few minutes. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. dry eye before and how perhaps uh, supplements aren't as useful as the natural sources of omega-3, uh, which is useful to know because I have actually recommended omega-3 supplements because that is one of the um, statistic statistical significantly uh, proven 
um, improved tear quality with uh, omega-3 increase in your diet. So um, if you, I suppose I'm interested in what, um, how you shorten this information or how we could as optometrists shorten this information um, to, for patients to take it away at the end of the, of the yeah. site test or where they could perhaps look for more information. Yes, absolutely. Because it's almost, you know, there's just so much to learn about nutrition and eye health. So from dry eye to cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, it is, it's almost like drinking from a fire hose, sometimes trying to, you know, gain, gain an understanding of these nutrients and how they are beneficial. But one, one practical tip I tell my patients is, you know, there are so many nutrients our eyes need. So it's not just one food group that we need. It's not just leafy greens or not just salmon that we need or not just nuts. It's really a variety of different nutrients. And the best way to get this, I would say is, I, I recommend to my patients that they eat a rainbow of colors. So what that means is, um, in, in, our, in most people's diets, we usually have three meals a day. Most people eat three meals a day. So seven days a week, that equates to 21 meals a week. And to have a rainbow during those 20, 21 meals. So I really encourage people to have a different color food with each meal. So have your various shades of green and red and orange and yellow and blue and purple and perhaps even black in your diet and rotate those colors throughout your meals during the week. And automatically you will get many of these nutrients that our eyes need to stay healthy. You will get those sources of vitamin A and C and E. You'll also get your macular carotenoids. You'll also get some of the other antioxidants like glutathione and alpha lipoic acid. Um, and then sprinkle in there um, some, uh, some sources of omega-3s, healthy fats, um, uh, perhaps that's fish or fish two or three times a week, perhaps that's nuts every day, a little bit of, uh, of, of nuts. And then, um, and then if you really feel like you're still deficient, then add a supplement to that, add a complete eye health supplement. Um, I particularly like there's a, a medical food on the market, which is what I would say is probably the, the most complete eye health supplement out there on the market. Um, but but um, but just try to get that variety of different colors, and automatically, you will you will get, be giving providing your eyes with what you need. Also, fruits are important. I know I've been talking a lot about vegetables and and nuts, but fruits are very important. And one of the best fruits I would say, or groups of groups of fruits, is berries. Um, so berries have. Um, plant-based pigments called anthocyanins. And these, these have actually been shown in studies, particularly some macular degeneration studies to help prevent macular degeneration. So the darker the berry, the better. So make sure to have a handful or a couple of berries every day as well. Um, that's usually how I break it down for my patients. The rainbow, I'll remember that. That's good. Um, is it the riboflavonoids as well in the um, berries? Is that right? This is- Yes, bioflavonoids. Exactly. So bioflavonoids, there are many different types of bioflavonoids. But again, if you just mix up the colors, you will automatically get everything your eyes need, those phytonutrients. And I'm also, you know, many people ask me, you know, Dr. Ronnie, what type of diet should I be on? You know, we hear, we hear about all these different types of diets. So you had mentioned the Mediterranean diet, which is wonderful, many proven health benefits. But now there's the keto diet that we hear about, or perhaps the paleo diet or the low FODMAP diet. Many people ask me, which diet should I be on? And I tell them for your eyes, um, you know, there's no specific regimen in terms of a diet, but I would say have a diet that is plant rich. So plenty of plants. And we talked about the different plants that you should be including in your diet. So not necessarily plant-based, meaning not necessarily vegan or vegetarian, but plant rich is really, really important. Yeah, that's a great term actually. 
I'll be using that to explain yes. my own uh, <laughs> diet to people. I think that's, that's a good one. Um, you did mention as well that um, with nutrition, I suppose partly because it's a young science or because it's hard to control the variables that, um, although it's an intuitive and, you, and it, you want it to make sense that as we adapt our diet, we can improve our health and obviously our ocular health. Um, frustratingly though, it's not yet always supported by a systematic review. So I suppose, what do you feel are the limiting factors in this field and how do you, or how can we convey those me messages to patients without giving them false hope? Yeah, so, so that's a great question about the lack of you know, large scale studies in nutrition and eye health. Um, you know, my take on it is that because nutrition is not backed by a pharmaceutical company, it's unlikely that we will have large-scale nutritional mm -hmm. studies. I mean, perhaps, yes, our, our national governments may be sponsoring some studies, but they are quite difficult to do, you know, epidemiologic types of studies, because there are so many confounding factors. There's genetics, there's environmental factors. Um, lifestyle factors, for example, weight and exercise and perhaps smoking or exposure to chemicals and toxins and fumes. So it's very difficult to isolate the impact of a nutrient or a group of nutrients on a particular disease process. But what I, what I tell my patients is there are some studies that suggest benefit, but you want to be as proactive about your health as possible because once oxidative stress and oxidative damage kick in in terms of our eyes, it's really very difficult to reverse those those changes. You know, structurally, we cannot. Once there has been optic nerve damage from glaucoma, for example, we cannot reverse that. And the goal is prevention. And I think now, especially during the pandemic that we're in, a lot more people are tuned into prevention of disease. People are recognizing that we need to provide our bodies with. Um, you know, the, the nutrients we need to prevent disease, to fight against disease, to fight against, you know, infections and, and inflammation and so forth. So I think people are more open to being proactive about health, in particular eye health, than perhaps before. And yes, there are no strong, you know, large uh, databases that we can go off, off of, we do have smaller studies, smaller scale studies we can use to back our um, recommendations. And it's also common sense. Um, you know, a lot of it is yes. common sense, you know, food is medicine. If you eat right, you can ward off many diseases. We know if we eat right, we can ward off um, high blood sugar. We can ward off hypertension. I mean, high cholesterol. It, it really depends on our dietary choices. And same goes for eye health. And yes, we, do, we don't want to, uh, you know, to speak to your, your question about giving them false hope. You don't want to give them for its false hope that, oh, if you eat this particular way that you will be 100% guaranteed to prevent macular degeneration or prevent cataracts. That's obviously not possible to give them a guarantee, but you can, you can tell them that you are providing your body with the strongest safeguards that, you, with that, that are possible to prevent against eye disease. So, um, you know, promote it in that sense. There is no 100% guarantee, but you want to do whatever is possible proactively. Absolutely. Yeah, and as you said uh, about pharma, uh, pharmaceutical industries, the, be the benefit of suggesting a healthier diet is that it doesn't cost them anything extra. Um, and it's, as you say, a well-rounded way to look after yourself in general. So it's something that I certainly, I certainly want to be able to recommend to people. And it's good to be able to have a sort of structure in how to do this the right way. Yes, and I love that that you mentioned that it doesn't cost anything. And um, oftentimes, you know, I, I do use a lot of therapeutic diets in my practice, um, not just for the eye conditions we mentioned, but sometimes also for inflammatory conditions. For example, for thyroid eye disease or myasthenia gravis, I do use dietary protocols. And patients experience 
benefits, not just in their eye health, but oftentimes reductions in their blood sugar, reductions in their blood pressure. Many of them are able to get off of, off of some of their other medications, um, which is wonderful. Many of them are able to lose weight. So the side effects, the quote unquote side effects of using some of these dietary protocols is that many patients reap other health benefits as well. So not just for their eyes, but for their entire body. Um, so far reaching benefits. Yeah. Um, and what, so what are your future hopes for this subject? Do you think that we'll, there will be more funding for this type of research or we'll be able to do longer studies that will give us more, um, I guess, support evidence for the whole subject? Again, I, my, my thought is unless our governments are willing to put money into the research, there probably won't be very large scale studies. Um, and uh, you know, my hope is again to try to educate as many people as possible. So not just my patients, but you know, fellow providers in eye care, and um, and eventually I do hope to uh, uh, have an uh, an online course where I can educate. Uh, my colleagues about nutrition, you know, what are the specific nutrients for each eye disease that we take care of? What does what the research show? Um, how can we get these nutrients in our diet? How can we advise our patients? If we're choosing an eye health, we're helping our, our patients choose an eye health supplement, which ones are, are most complete? Because, you know, there are probably over 50 eye care supplements on the market, and each of them has a unique formulation. And, um, you know, it's really help. It's important to understand what's in there, which formulations there are. Some are, are lipid based, some are water soluble, some are, I would say, complete, others are incomplete. So it is important to help our patients to guide them through the process. And I think by being better informed ourselves, we'll be in a much better state to help our patients. So do you work with uh, optometrists in New York? I do, yes. So you know, it's it's wonderful to have that working relationship. Um, I I really you know I I cherish my um, my colleagues in optometry, and I really think it, you know for eye care in general, it's important for us to work together as eye care providers. You know, we all have the same shared goal, which is improving the vision of our patients. And oftentimes, you know, patients will be referred back and forth. And, you know, I think it's the the most beneficial relationship possible. Actually, I was going to uh, bring up the. COVID topic, I'm afraid, and say that recently, um, do you feel like you've noticed any change in people's behavior towards their diet in the lockdown periods or with people's stress and anxiety being higher than ever? Have you seen any changes? Um, I, yeah, I think many people have, uh, because we have been more at home and we have more control over our diet, people have been leaning more towards cooking at home, at home eating healthier, choosing healthier foods. And then also, I think uh, the, the, the concept of um, blue light has really been on the, on the for, in the forefront of many people's minds as a side effect of, co of the pandemic that we're in. So many of us are on our screens for, for work or school, for socialization. So that has, has really come to the forefront in, front of, in, in terms of um, how blue light may potentially impact our eye health and what we can do to prevent against that. So I have had many people ask me about blue blockers, whether it's glasses or screen filters. And again, I go back to nutrition and I really try to educate them about the importance of those macular carotenoids not just for older people who are trying to fight macular degeneration, but even for younger people, even for children, because it's important to get those macular carotenoids. So we have our internal blue blockers to help fight against this blue light that we're all you know, being bombarded with for hours a day. So uh, you know, first, first and foremost, eat more healthily. And secondly, consider a supplement if you are on a screen for prolonged periods of time a day. As an optometrist, we are certainly asked about screen time a lot and with children developing 
uh, myopia because there's a huge shift towards many more people having myopia and obviously we're on screens more and and there isn't yet the evidence as um, as of course you know to support that um it's to do with our screen time it's only been shown to be statistically linked to how much time we spend outside in our sort of teenage years but this has reminded me of something i've seen you talk about which is uh, vr headsets virtual reality um, yes <laughs> because i've also uh, been asked recently by a concerned mother if she should let her child have a vr headset and um on doing a very short amount of research i've um, i think it's the, the position that technically there is no evidence to suggest that it has any impact on eye health or, or growth or development but i suppose we want many of us may feel that it might and i wondered if you had any views on that Yes, so VR, you know, it's, it's first of all, it's a, it's a wonderful form of entertainment. I'll say that, uh, but um, and our and our children are definitely, you know, very in, intrigued by it, and some of them are even addicted to it. So similar to the myopia question, you know, in terms of screen time and myopia. Uh, progression. We don't have the evidence yet. We don't have any evidence to suggest that it is harmful. But what I would say is that particularly with young children and their developing brains, you know, when, when, when one uses a VR headset, you know, our senses are almost disjointed. You know, we, we are given something artificial that we're looking at, but in terms of our proprioception, our balance, that is uh, almost separated by this VR headset. And, um, and, you know, the other senses as well that we use for balance and, and, um, and, and so forth. And so um, if one is choosing to use VR, you know, the best recommendation is everything in moderation. So I usually recommend, especially to my young patients, um, no more than 20 minutes at a time, definitely take breaks. And as you mentioned, it is important if you're using a VR device or, or on a screen for prolonged periods of time, make sure you get outdoors. Uh, those studies I think are really critical that show that at least two hours of outdoor time for children is really important. I know that um, in some countries in Europe, they have instituted rules about children being outdoors during the school day and also in Asia as well. Um, it is mandated in some uh, countries to go outside for at least two hours a day to reduce myopia progression. So it all kind oh, of goes wow. hand in hand, screen time, VR, um, everything in moderation. And unfortunately, we don't have um, hard data to guide us, but uh, also there is no data to suggest that it's truly harmful uh, as of yet. And, and the other thing is that, so uh, VR is also used therapeutically. So um, it's used for certain uh, psychiatric conditions to help um, improve, for example, certain fears, for example, um, fear of heights, uh, fear of crowds. So VR therapy can be useful um, and also for, for rehabilitation. So VR therapy is used for patients with strokes. There's, a, there's actually even research done in children who've had strokes using uh, virtual reality to help them rehabilitate. So it's not all just for entertainment and it's not all uh, potentially harmful. It can be actually therapeutic. Uh, which is which is a you know it puts it in a positive light yeah i uh, i didn't know that that's that is interesting i suppose we may have touched on this uh, but uh, in a generation of misinformation how do you steer patients towards getting the right information from a reputable source after they've left you and maybe have only picked up a few things over what you've said to just give them a reference to uh, come back to obviously here we have the nhs websites Yes, yes, there, there, you know, there's no end to the amount of uh, sources out there. I usually try to steer my, my patients to, um, you know, if they're, they are searching for something on the web, go to an academic institution or a, um, you know, a website from a national government agency or from a foundation. For example, there are some wonderful eye health foundations 
um, that provide information. I tried to steer them towards that and tried to steer them away from, you know, anecdotal reports, for example, or, you know, there's also a lot out there on social media. I know that there are many social media groups, uh, patient-centered groups or, or patient advocacy groups where, you know, patients tend to post things that are um, unfortunately, more negative outcomes rather than positive outcomes. So it is really important to just be balanced in terms of where you're getting your information and look, you know, try to balance it out by having those recognized kind of established sources of information. Brilliant. Yeah. Especially during the pandemic. I mean, there are just, there's just tremendous amounts of information out there. Yeah, and, too, much, uh, yes, too much time. Yeah, you may follow your favorite, you know, Instagram influencer or, you know, be on a particular Facebook group, but always try to balance that out by, um, you know, more kind of uh, reputable, I shouldn't just say reputable, but um, uh, more science-based sources of information. For example, in the U.S., we have the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, so that's where I oftentimes refer my patients for information. Good. Okay. Well, thank you. There's, um, I think I just have uh, one last question, which is, um, have you got any New Year's resolutions to do with uh, your own ocular health? Yes, I do. Um, so I am very guilty of using uh, screen time late into the night. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've all probably heard about the, the negative aspects of screen time on our sleep health and our sleep hygiene. And I know that it definitely makes it much more difficult for me to fall asleep and stay asleep. So I'm going to be more mindful of that. Use my um, screen filters, my blue blocking glasses for that particular reason. And uh, really try to limit my screen time at least one to two hours before bedtime. So that is my resolution. It's a good one. I think we could all use that one. Mm -hmm. It's tempting, but I'm going to fight it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just have a sort of automatic turn off time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How about you? What is your New Year's resolution? Um, this is a good question. I, I haven't really set one. So I suppose to have more structure in my uh, exercise routine because it's a bit sporadic since lockdown. But no, nothing, nothing as interesting as that, I'd say. Oh, well, that's a wonderful resolution. Yes, definitely. <laughs> exercise for for health and eye health is also very important yeah absolutely well thank you very much this has been really informative and um really helpful and i'll be certainly passing on a lot of what you've said to uh, uh patients that i see personally and hopefully one that's listened will be able to pass it on and just keep this information moving forward well thank you thank you for having me on on your podcast i really enjoyed our conversation and sharing information I, I do hope that, you know, we can all work together in terms of improving our eye health, our own eye health and those of our patients as well. That Great. is the goal. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Sophie and Dr. Bannock for their conversation. Food for thought. No, even I'm not going to do that. We'll be back with another podcast soon. Until then, please feel free to subscribe, rate and review. That's the podcast, not Martin's Diet. And with that, it's time for a brownie. Thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time.